using positive psychology to decrease the self-doubt we have in our money stories to experience more joyful, meaningful, and happy moments. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Hello, welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Wow, that was a fantastic interview with my guest, Louisa Jewell. But before we get into the interview, thank you for listening. Thank you for leaving a review if you have, and mostly thank you for sharing these interviews or conversations with your friends, family, or whomever you feel might enjoy them. Now, originally I meant to release this podcast episode on June 16th because my guest, Louisa Jewell, released her Audible original podcast called The Awesome Project on June 16th. So I wanted to time them, but life happened and I'm releasing it today, June 17th. That being said, my guest, Louisa Jewell, who is a positive psychology expert, released a podcast yesterday, June 16th, called The Awesome Project. Check it out. It's an Audible original. So who is Louisa? Well, she is a gal with a wealth of knowledge relating to positive psychology. And specifically during this conversation, we talk about how to remove self-doubt and increase our confidence. Self-doubt has a huge role in our relationship with money. Often, the most damaging stories we tell ourselves are the stories about ourselves. And money only fuels these conversations. During this fantastic conversation, we talk about the importance of having self-compassion when navigating our money stories, how reframing the meaning we give to our jobs can actually drastically impact our well-being in a positive way. We also discuss ways in which we can increase the feeling of joy, happiness, and meaning when we change how we spend our money, not how much money we make, rather how we spend our money. And of course, we talk about how to avoid the hedonic treadmill. That pesky treadmill seems to get most of us, but Louisa shares some really good ideas on how we can avoid that. And finally, we talk about why women should rule the world and much more. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated Effort podcast. Today, I am happy to have Louisa Jewell, who is the founder and president of the Canadian Positive Psychology Association and the author of the book, Wire Your Brain for Confidence, The Science of Conquering Self-Doubt. She is also the host of the Audible podcast called The Awesome Project, which is launching worldwide on June 16th. Louisa contributes regularly to the CBC radio and as well, a well-being expert as is a featured expert on several documentaries, including The Science of Happiness and Mental Health in the City. She holds a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania and was a professor of positive psychology at the University of Texas. Louisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Sean. Yeah, thank you so much. And as I was reading your bio, the June 16th podcast release popped into my head and I released my podcast weekly and i'm just gonna have to release yours next week then so okay to, Yay, thank you <laughs> thank you so much for uh for coming on the show i uh, i was very interested in having you 
join me and our audience. I've talked about this before on the show that I am taking a master's, which you have taken, and now you've created the Canadian Positive Psychology Association. So it's going to be very, very insightful to have someone with your wealth of knowledge share with our audience. So (laughs) on the podcast, though, the intent is to explore the intersection between our minds, our money and what matters most. And we're going to definitely be talking about the latter part, what matters most. And I often do this through stories. Um, As humans, we're story making machines, we apply meaning to so many different things. And I think it's our brains or our minds seek to find, I guess, order our significance out of these confusing life events that we have. And I think stories do such a good job doing that. And there's a saying that goes, our life is our story and our story is our life. So I want to start there with your story. Can you take us back to the chapter of your life prior to writing your book, prior to founding the Canadian Positive Psychology Association and all the keynote speeches you did? Can you speak to the impact the Marilyn Dennis show had on your life? And I got this from your book <laughs> about how you found positive psychology. Yeah. You know what? I So I used to watch the Marilyn Dennis show every morning as a new mother. And I was finding it difficult to be a new mother because, you know, you, you know, I used to work for this big tech company and I was making a lot of money and putting together million dollar deals. And then suddenly you're at home, you're, you're not intellectually stimulated, you're watching Barney 24-7. <laughs> and I just remember watching the Marilyn Dennis show every day just to get inspiration and ideas about how to be a better mother and other, you know, other tips. And just feeling really depressed. Uh, I think it was part of postpartum depression and other things that were going on in my life at the time. I was just feeling really, really depressed. And one day, uh, Marilyn Dennis, she had this regular ongoing psychologist who was on the show and it suddenly dawned on me, oh yeah, I'm depressed. I should go see a psychologist. This had never dawned on me before. And you know, really when you think about it, We don't really learn about how to take care of our mental health at school, right? They teach us about nutrition. They teach us about exercise, but nobody really tells us about how to stay mentally healthy. And really the only time that we're introduced to these kind of ideas around our mental support is really when we're in a breakdown or when we feel that we're in a a depression or we have incredible amounts of anxiety or we just can't cope with life. So I decided to go see this psychologist and he was really amazing, very helpful. But what I realized is he was reframing my thoughts. I could tell, you know, I would say something and then he would reframe. I thought, okay. I said, look, I can't keep running back to you every time I have a a down, you know, whenever I'm feeling down in life, I really need to know what you know. So give me some book ideas that I could read up on this. And he gave me several book ideas. And that's when, of course, I read my first book by Martin Seligman, Dr. Martin Seligman, who's considered the founding father of positive psychology. And I was just transformed. I thought, I have to go learn this. And and really, positive psychology is the scientific study of psychological well-being and human flourishing. And so I uh, studied with him. I went back to school. I did my master's degree. And I read about 6,000 pages of research. Mm -hmm. And I applied everything I learned to myself. And I never fell into a clinical depression again. And it was just 
life transforming. And then shortly after I started the Canadian Positive Psychology Association, because everybody wanted to know, they wanted to know more, how do we do this? You know, and, and now we teach it to teachers and psychologists and psychotherapists and doctors and leaders and HR professionals and coaches and fitness trainers. And, you know, everybody can weave it into the work they do. Wow. Okay. So you really took uh, the lesson it was given you and took, no, I don't want to say advantage, but that's the only word coming to me and uh, you've done so much with it. Now for people listening who are positive psychology, they might be thinking, the book, The Secret, or if I think I'm happy, I'll be happy. Can you explain, so you said some key words there, the study of psychological well-being, flourishing. Can you help distinguish what is positive psychology and maybe also what is not positive psychology? Yes. Well, even just the words positive psychology, everyone thinks it's like we're walking around saying, just be positive. I I know your house is on fire, but you know, (laughs) look the other way, right? And that's really not what positive psychology means. The positive in positive psychology just means that we study the plus side of psychology. So when you think about it, most of psychology has been in the study of mental illness, what's wrong with us, how to cure people, how to fix people. And that's actually good because Mm -hmm. if people are suffering, we want to know how to help people. But just because you are not mentally ill does not also mean that you're flourishing. And so positive psychology is the study of how do we take people who are maybe just languishing or getting through life or just surviving and actually flourishing, actually living optimally. So that's really what the study of positive psychology is about. So leaders will use it, for example, to say, how can I keep my people very motivated, inspired, doing their best, leveraging their strengths? Coaches will also use it on how can I help people improve their goal achievement? You know, what is some of the science behind this that can help people achieve goals? Or schools will use it to teach kids how to be resilient. How do you bounce back from adversity? How do you improve your confidence and go after what you really want in life? I mean, there's a, you know, a thousand other topics that I can talk about that we study in positive psychology that really is designed to improve your life and improve your psychological well-being. And that also improves your physical well-being. They go hand in hand. Yeah, you know, I really, that's what attracted me to the study is that traditional psychology kind of brings you from the deficit to neutral, but then we kind of just stop there. And if you look at other, I'm a sports guy. So when I played hockey, I hired a coach to get better. When running, I hired someone to help me get better. And and there was none of that for human, like the operating this wild human mind of ours. Right, exactly. And and you mentioned goals. And I think goals is such a thing that has changed so much for me as I learned the little bit about this field that I've dove into is that for years I've been a goal setter, but positive psychology has allowed me to see more authentic goals, value aligned goals, goals that I created and not what the, the external system creates. And so I also see yeah. this a really good function, not just at the individual level, but communities, societies that can benefit from positive psychology. Uh, before we go into your story a bit more, but what's your thoughts on like societal impacts or like a group setting, not just the individual perspective of positive yeah. psychology? Well, you know, we see that in schools, for example, the impact that this kind of teaching can have on schools. And what you find is that the entire community flourishes as a result because students start to flourish, faculty learn this, so they're flourishing, 
you have staff, you also have then parents, you have other family members. So you can see it within a school system. But we also practice other tools. For example, appreciative inquiry is a tool that we use with systems. So we may go into an organization and conduct a certain kind of inquiry that really helps us understand what is the positive core. What are the strengths of the organization? How can we mobilize those people now to be inspired to change and move forward? Because change, people can be so reluctant to change. And it's a much more inspiring way to get people to change and move towards a new vision. So there's lots of different ways. You know, our goal, Martin Seligman many years ago said his goal is 51% of the population flourishing. So we really see this as a societal thing. You know, I started the Canadian Positive Psychology Association because I wanted to be the ripple in the pond, helping practitioners all across Canada to spread this. I think that's how it becomes more of a societal thing when you can teach the teachers and then they go off and, and do it in, in their work. But, you know, for example, I was talking to someone the other day about uh, a project that we're starting for the Indigenous community who really needs help. But, you know, they don't need help from an uninformed source, but rather to be able to collaborate with people in the Indigenous community who are practicing positive psychology, to be able to then share their knowledge in a way that is relatable for our Indigenous community, where we can make the connections with how they are, are spiritually connected to the world. And, and so I think there's, there's many opportunities there for us to reach, you know, so many different groups. Mm. Yeah, you know, when we look at change, often the greatest change is systemic change or systems change. And really you creating this association is part of that systems change that you're providing these practitioners with the means of information. And you used a good word there, I thought, collaborate with different communities like indigenous communities where your guys are collaborating, which to me means that you're sharing knowledge and as a, I guess, a group together or two groups coming together, you, you collaborate. And I think that's when, you know, the best results come. And I think collaborating is the best. I really don't like it when people say, oh, you should do mm. that. And you should. No, there's collective wisdom. Mm -hmm. There's collective wisdom everywhere. So let's put a voice to that collective wisdom. And then, and then let's weave that in with some of the science that we have that can maybe um, give it a little bit of strength or give it a little bit of nourishment so that there's a greater understanding between what we're trying to do in different societies. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's really important that, pe that you meet people where they're at and understand the cultural differences before you, you go in and try to teach anything. I think that's for any... Anyone, teachers are like such a powerful statement you just said there. So I appreciate that. So I have a money podcast that's kind of about money, mostly about money, but mostly it's about what matters most. And, you know, someone has asked me before, why are you studying positive psychology? You're, you're a CFP, a certified financial planner. And you said some key words earlier. You mentioned psychological well-being. You said flourishing. And you also said it's a study of human behavior and how we can flourish. Yes. So when I speak to people about 
finances. We usually talk about working. I'm working to get this much money or I'm saving for this goal. I'm investing for this reason, or I want to retire at whatever age I need this much money. And those are all valid. We need like, those are valid conversations, but I feel like they're very first level of the onion, so to speak. Right. Because when we start to engage further on questions around money, saving and investing, I often find that it gravitates the conversation to people wanting to be happy, people wanting to have meaning, people wanting to have purpose, people wanting to have a life that is not, this isn't 100% possible, but more congruent, meaning their values and their actions are aligning. That's right. So really, this idea of money comes towards serving those underlying things, meaning purpose, happy life, values aligned. And that's exactly what positive psychology is doing. So it's made me think that for thousands, or not thousands, but for hundreds or hundred years, we've been studying how to invest better, how to save, how to help people save better. Very, very important things. But if I do an analogy to a car, I'm not a car guy, but if I was, I would tell you how to build a big engine. But let's say right. we build this big engine And if I don't know how to drive, the engine doesn't matter. Or if I don't know how to steer that vehicle, this big souped up engine with whatever horsepowers doesn't actually matter because I can't drive it or can't steer it in the right direction. So the reason why I think it's so important to study the human behavior as in positive psychology is we're the driving force behind those financial decisions. And if we don't understand what we want, I think we can get lost. So this is a long-winded question about... When we talk about this idea of finding meaning, purpose, and living the good life, many times the narrative that we've been either prescribed or adopted is that, well, Sean, you can't do meaningful things or purposeful things like in your work and make good money, or you can't do these things and still make money. Right. What is your perspective on aspiring to live this good life while doing work that you know you like doing? Is it possible? Can we aspire towards something like that? Absolutely. I think that you can do what you love and make good money doing it. Now, the trick is, you know, many, many years ago, I was working for a big tech company and I thought it was great, but not for me. I knew, you know, I wanted to do something that felt like more my purpose, that was aligned with what I wanted to do in the world. And I wanted to help people somehow. So I didn't really connect selling computers with you know, my purpose. And so what I did was I went to career counseling because I found out that in career counseling, they help you design a career that is more aligned with who you are and what you want to accomplish. And I think, I think everybody should do career counseling. And I mean, really heavy duty where you're really looking at yourself and your values and your goals and how much money you want to make and who you want to service and what you want to accomplish in your life. Because once you do that, then the first step is you get closer to what that is. And then you go out and you try that and you go, oh, this was close, but I think I have to make a few more tweaks. So then there's another job or another career. And then, you know, and you just keep making those tweaks until you finally have tweaked it to the point where you are just loving what you do and you're making the money that you do. And that's how my career unfolded. I was making, you know, good money as a as a, you know, person in tech, but didn't love it at all. In fact, really hated it. You know, now I'm doing exactly what I love. I just love my days and love what I'm doing and love who I connect with and love the projects I'm on. 
and then the money is there, which is fantastic. So, but that doesn't just come overnight. It was a planned approach for me, many years of tweaking, then discovering positive psychology. I turned that, as Karen Rockine, my friend Karen Rockine would say, I turned my pain into purpose. And, uh, and then that's really when life kind of just took off that way. So it is possible. You know, I think people often don't think it's possible. So they don't look into it, right? Mm. They think, oh, that's just, you know, oh, I'll just do that on the side because, you know, you can't really make money doing what you love. So, and I think that is the obstacle that people just don't believe that it can happen. So they never make it happen. They never take the steps necessary to make it happen. But, you know, it is possible. And, and I do kind of agree with people because we know from the, re- my friend was saying the other day, money doesn't buy you happiness. And I said, ah, 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 wrong. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. according to the research, you know, there, a certain amount of money does buy you happiness. You know, people who are wealthier actually are a lot happier than people who are living in poverty, but in, in context, because, you know, we see people who live in very poor societies who are quite happy because they're comparing themselves to everybody else and they feel like their life is quite fine. You know, when we're talking about a, a North American standard where the standard of living is higher you know, then people who are considerably, uh, who live in poverty can see the difference. They can mm-hmm. see the comparison and it life does become more difficult. So what we find with the research studies is that once you achieve a certain level of wealth, you, you know, you actually start to level off in terms of your level of happiness. So the question becomes, once you're making a certain amount of money, should you invest more of your time in things that bring you greater well-being and happiness or invest your time in another, you know, $10,000 worth of revenue that year? And the answer is you're probably better off engaging more with your family and with your life because you're going to get much more of a happiness boost with that than you would with another $10,000 worth of revenue. So I think that's an important thing for people to know. Mm. Yeah. And there's been so many good research showing that, like to your point, that it certainly does money help you become happier to that point. Yes. And um, I had uh, Dr. Brad Klontz. He does a lot of work in financial psychology. And he put a paper out that a lot of um, something that high, high income earners struggle with is when they make it, so to speak, having that attain that much money, they're like, whoa, this is it. I was expecting something more because perhaps that alignment wasn't there. Right. Or, or I know, I know a friend of mine who's extremely wealthy and, and I was saying like, isn't, you know, 20 million enough for, they say, yeah, the thing is, Louise, so like once you make your first 20 million, then you want another 20 million, right? Like it's like the challenge of, you know, of, of making that and, and it's, and it is an achievement for them, right? It's a challenge, you know, can I do my next? So I, I get it, you know, I, I understand the thrill of that for sure. Mm-hmm. In the book, The Power of Meaning, I'm forgetting the author's name. She went to the same program you would have went to. But um, she tells a story in there, and I think it was from a research paper that, you know, some people might not be able to step right into their desired job because they have to provide for their family and so forth. 
Right. But the power of finding meaning using reframes in your current role really helped some people in this study. And one specific one, she talked about custodial staff at a hospital. That's who, right. Do you, are you familiar with this one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Why don't you share? I thought that was really powerful as well. Well, and so what they found is that uh, it really doesn't matter what your role is. It really depends on how you're framing it. So one of the janitors who might be mopping the floor in a hospital would say, you know, I am actually helping this person heal. I am the person that is responsible for the cleanliness of their room. And that is so important for their health and for their healing. And so that's how they make meaning of a job. And so you could have someone who's mopping the floors who finds much greater meaning than the surgeon who just operated on this person who goes in, does the deed, and then, you know, is going home and really doesn't, you know, is not really invested in the whole meaning of what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it does make a difference how you look at things. And you know, I think really purpose and meaning can happen at, at any time. And it really depends on the lens with which you see what you're doing and, and how you're being in the world. You know, I, I have a friend who says, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have a big career, but her job is so meaningful in terms of what she does. And then she spends uh, a lot of time as well um, helping all of us in our girlfriend community and her family and I mean, the purpose and the incredible things that she does for, for our whole group is really fantastic and, and just fills her with so much meaning and purpose. And I don't know what our community would do without her. <laughs> so, you know, doesn't your purpose and meaning doesn't have to be defined by a career or, or a job. It can just be how you're being in the world, how you're showing up in the world. <laughs> That reminds me of way back when I was a student, I worked at a, like a, a student job where we worked with the city's department to, I was kind of grass, but there's this one gentleman who was super happy, very, very happy. And he was the garbage man. And he always talked to the people, very intelligent. He was always talked to the students, what they're doing. And I told him like, I don't know, I'm going into business to make money maybe. And he's like, ah, those stockbrokers and those people, he's like, <laughs> They can go on holidays for a month and no one will notice. He's like, can you imagine if I took a holiday for a month, the garbage would pile up. And I'm like, That's wow, right. so true. That's very true. Yes. Yeah. And it also just, you know, for some kids, the janitor is the only person who talks to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's such an important role. The janitor at a school, I loved the janitor at my school. And, you know, his name was Mr. Hannah. And I still remember, you know, how how he influenced my life. That's so, I remember Mr. Zinger, my janitor. And like, wow. Yeah, yeah. it's such an important role. You've got me thinking. Um, <laughs> on the topic of thinking, I want to go to your book because in your book, you talk a lot about thinking and specifically on one type of thinking that I want to get to, but your book titled Wire Your Brain for Confidence, The Science of Conquering Self-Doubt. There's a lot of key words in there, but I want to focus on self-doubt. In there, I was uh, browsing around and maybe we can start with, again, we're going to go to a story here. Start with you explaining self-doubt and why you came to it back in your cheerleading days. And uh, maybe that can help frame it for everybody. (laughs) Well, I was the head cheerleader uh, one year 
it was the first year that we had decided to enter the Ontario cheerleading championships. We had never been in a championship and we were like nine little girls, you know, so we, we didn't have a big cheerleading team. Like some of these teams were like 25 girls and, you know, it was mainly girls back then. I know there's boys and, and men in uh, cheerleading now, but it was mainly girls back then. So we went to the Ontario cheerleading championships. We never really thought, you know, we could win but we tried our hardest. We had all these other things that we did to be successful. And at the end, we, I remember sitting and we were waiting for them to call the, you know, call the winners and they called fourth place. And I thought, oh, that could, you know, that could be us. That could be us. And then they called another team. And then I thought, oh, third place, you know, uh, maybe. And anyway, they called another team. And then I, and then I just figured I gave up because I thought there's no way we got second or first. Like there's, there's no possible way. And we actually won. We won (laughs) the competition. And I remember I had a real sort of uh, dilemma in my head. It, it's, it's so interesting because I was elated at the time, but later I thought, what's wrong here? You were the head cheerleader. You had a strategy. You and your team worked really hard. And yet you thought there was absolutely no chance you could win. And you actually won. So there's such a disconnect between what's in your head and what's actually going on in reality. And that's when I thought, wow, that's, that was really powerful for me to say, I have to fix this. It took many years for me to figure out what it was. But I just remember in that moment thinking there's like, there's something wrong. And I think I still hear women today who are hugely successful and then turn to me and say, oh, well, I guess I got lucky there, you know. And I think the imposter syndrome is alive and well. And I just, it happens to so many people I know that they're, that they still have this, this self-doubt. They still doubt themselves regardless of success. Mm -hmm. I pulled out a quote from your book that's along the lines of what we're talking about, but it says, my thoughts and beliefs about myself and my capabilities could be very different from the reality of the situation, regardless of feedback, evidence, and experience. That's right. That spoke to me. I'm sure other people experience the same thing. For those of us who self-doubt pops up often, for one thing, I think in a way it's natural. And so not to think negatively of ourselves, but what have you learned are some ways that we can coexist with self-doubt, work on self-doubt? What have you learned? Well, and and I think you're right too, you know, self-doubt is natural. If you're trying something new, it's normal for us to say, "Hmm, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that or not, right? So that's totally normal. And I think a little bit of self-doubt is actually good because if I'm going to go climb Mount Everest, I better be doubtful, you know, (laughs) and, and prepare, right? And prepare for that and make sure that I do a good job. Or I've been asked to go present to the president of my company, you know, maybe I want to have a little bit of self-doubt and say, wait, maybe I should present to my boss and make sure it all looks good and and do a good job. So I think having a little bit of self-doubt actually does improve your performance. The problem is when you have chronic self-doubt, when you are questioning everything you do, then that's when self-doubt can really be a problem. So one of the 
first things to get over self-doubt is to really understand how to build self-confidence. And in my book, I talk about this idea of self-efficacy, which is a concept put forward by Dr. Albert Bandura, who's you know one of the most uh, successful psychologists of, of all time. He's retired now from Stanford. So what self-efficacy is, is it's more of an action-oriented kind of confidence. So what you find in the self-efficacy research is that when you are trying something new, you want to be able to take baby steps, for example. You know, oftentimes we have self-doubt. We think we have to be a 10 right out of the gate. So we don't do it. We don't actually engage because we think, well, this is going to be embarrassing, you know, or I've never been on a podcast. Maybe I should say no to Sean because, you know, what if, what if I look bad? What if I do a bad job, right? You know, that's what we might be saying to ourselves if we've never tried something before. And then we stop ourselves from doing things. But really what we know from the research is should never stop yourself. Give it a try, right? Try it because you will learn from that. You will get better from And you have to then be able to look back and say, well, what did I do well? I learned something from that experience. And then to be able to then go and try it again and again and again. And that's why the baby steps are really important so that you don't feel that you're going to crash and burn trying to be this perfect person right out of the gate. But rather, you know, little baby steps are much more manageable for us. And then to have what we call a growth mindset as you do that. So the work of Dr. Carol Dweck, for example, talks about having a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset will stop us from doing things while a growth mindset allows us to move forward and try new things a lot easier. And a fixed mindset is really someone who is more concerned with looking good. They want to look good all the time. And I think that's what really stops us because we have this self-doubt. We don't know if we're going to be successful. So we don't go and do it because we're afraid we're going to look bad. If I told those same people, look, you're going to go and do this on a deserted island. No one's going to see you. Then they would be absolutely fine. But we are Mm. social creatures. Mm. We do care what other people think. So if you can care less about what other people think, and I don't mean not to get feedback. Of course, I want to hear feedback from people. But what I mean is that if I fail, I don't care as much. And for me, shifting from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset was life-changing for me because I was so concerned with how I looked. I never wanted to look bad. I definitely had a fixed mindset. And when I decided that I was going to care less about how I looked and care more about growing and learning, oh my gosh, my world just opened up. And now when I go and try something and it does not go as planned and I'm very disappointed or it's a bit of a failure, I just say, well, at least you tried. I'm not embarrassed because I think at least I'm out there doing stuff, you know? And so I just don't really kind of pay attention to judgments or or anything else anymore. Not, and I find too, people don't really judge you. People are more concerned with their own lives. You know, you think everybody's out there <laughs> watching you all the time and they're really not. They could really care less. They're more concerned with what they're doing, right? And I find too that people celebrate your wins when, when things go well and they go, hey, way to go, right? I find more people jump in to be supportive 
And that's another thing. That's another real tip for self-doubt is have the right people surrounding you. Because if you just have a bunch of naysayers and people who are judgmental or people who call out, you know, pull out your flaws all the time, then you're definitely, you know, going to find it very difficult to move forward with your dreams and ideas. I always say to people, don't tell your family what you're doing until you're very confident (laughs) in this tablet. Because, you know, somehow our family members think that they have the license to uh, rip all your dreams apart, you know, before they've even (laughs) gotten off the ground, right? (laughs) I'm sure people know what I'm talking about. But so find those really super supportive people who are going to be supportive and realistic with you at the same time, but still have your back and still be the wind beneath your wings and be there when you fall and be there also when you're celebrating. So I think that's critical. Yeah. You know, I talked about uh, money podcasts and talking about positive psychology, but that idea alone, care less. And to aspire to remove those or feeling judged, I think that's in the scheme of life has a large impact comparative to us talking about how to maximize our investment returns on this call. So I thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's again, why I think this is so applicable to money is because money is a tool for us to live this good life. And if we aren't clear on what that looks like. And if we are constantly even making money because, and this is, this is um, true, is that some people you know our ego or we're driven to make money because of self-doubt is we want to prove by making this money that um, we can do it. Yeah. Our society really says you're, you're worthy if you're rich and successful mm-hmm. and you, you know, like that, our society kind of tells us that. And, and if we can kind of, you know, I kind of set my own definition of success and say, if I'm doing this, I'm, I feel successful and I, and I really don't care if society feels that that's successful or, or not. But that's very hard to do. It takes courage. It takes mm. confidence for you to be able to say, you know, I'm fine. I remember sending my daughter to a, a private school because she was very, very bright. And I thought that it would do better there. And, and someone said to me, oh, are you not going to send her to the, you know, the top five? When it, you know, like it, it had mm. to be the right school with the right name. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting because it's not about the name. For me, it was about, was it the right school that's going to nurture, you know, what she needs because she was a bright kid. So, and I think if we, if we talk about money, what I think would be a really important part of this conversation too is, is how are you spending your money? Because Mm. there is a lot of research on that. Um, and, and because our society places all this importance on material goods, like, do you have the cottage? Do you drive the nice car? What does your house look like? What clothes are you wearing? Are you wearing, do you have the Louis Vuitton bag? You know, we think that we need to be investing in all these material things to make us look better, feel better. And then that's going to make us happier. When in fact, there is this concept of the hedonic treadmill that you buy something, you might be happy, it might have a little blip in your happiness for a few months, but we kind of hover back to our a, a very stable set range again. So those material things really after a while really don't add to our happiness. 
And in fact, what does add to our happiness is experiences. So instead of spending $2,500 on, on one of those sexy bags or handbags or purses, you know, going to Italy with your best friend is probably a better investment for your happiness because then you'll have those memories. You can put pictures up on the wall and reminisce about it forever. And that's what we find in the research, that it's how you spend your money and, and as opposed to what you spend it on. And yeah, again, that's the power of understanding ourselves. And that's where I think positive psychology comes in. If we don't understand what we value, which positive psychology really helps get clarity, then we don't know what to spend our money on. And the marketers are doing a wonderful job making us feel like we need that bag. Yeah. And uh, I think that that adaptations and humans ability to adapt certainly is a wonderful thing because we probably wouldn't be here if that wasn't hardwired into humans. Yes. But when it comes to materials, you're absolutely right. We just get used to those things. And I think I've seen research three months on average, we go back to our baseline on a material purchase. So well, well, and what is really interesting too, is we're starting to find in the well-being research is that levels of happiness are kind of pretty stable you know, our well-being levels are kind of state, which means that as human beings, we're pretty resilient. Things can happen and we bounce back, right? Good things can happen. And unfortunately, we also <laughs> bounce back. So I think it's about knowing how to live every day in a way that elevates those feelings of happiness and joy and well-being and meaning and purpose every single day. That's where I think we can really find that we can have lasting rises to our lasting rays to our well-being. Mm. I wanted to touch on something that is kind of hand in hand with the self-doubt, but it's around perfectionism. And I, I, I bring this up because I know you speak about it, but also I talk to people who want to perfectly align their investment portfolios. They want to perfectly do a job or at work, they might even procrastinate so much because they want it to be perfect. But my question is, can you talk about the impacts perfection may be having on the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves? Yeah. Well, perfectionism can just kill your well-being. And perfectionism is not just striving to be excellent and wanting to be excellent and perfect all the time, but also expecting to be perfect all the time. And when you're not perfect, it causes such anxiety and stress. And Alice Domar does a lot of research on women in stress. And she says, you know, it's, it's really great to want to be excellent, but not great to expect to be excellent and to be perfect all the time. So if we can say, well, I'm going to strive to be excellent, but I really don't care to be perfect because nobody's perfect. Right. If you take a look at the research on self-compassion, one of the greatest components of self-compassion is to say, I am perfectly flawed, just like billions of other people on this planet. So when I make a mistake, I am 100% normal. This is part of my human experience to make mistakes and not be perfect. And when we can love everything about us, flaws and all, I think it's beautiful. And one of my favorite tools, and this has emerged as one of the favorite tools from my book. So many people have written to me about this tool. 
uh, or they'll call me and they'll say peace at six because it's called peace at six and people will call and say peace at six Mm -hmm. and this is what I'm going through right now. And so what I found in the research is that uh, young women were starting to feel that they had to be excellent and perfect in 14 different domains of life, 14. And boys in the same research, young men, were not. They only felt that they wanted to be excellent in, a, in a, I think it was probably a three or four different domains of, of life. And I thought, no wonder we're going crazy as women. We think we need to be, you know, these incredible mothers and we need to be sexy and we need to look like we're 25, even though we're 55 and thin. You know, Alice Domar always talks about this idea that every woman that they need to be thin for some unknown reason. And so there's so much that we put on our shoulders. And so what I say to people is, if you think about, you know, rating all your different domains of your life on a scale of sort of one to 10, choose a few that you really want to be excellent at. Like I, I'm a speaker. I want to be an excellent speaker. I really do. So I try hard. I'm learning new things all the time. I practice. Even though I've been doing this for like 25 years, I still you know, want to do better and better. So I put the effort there. I want to be a 10. I don't expect to be a 10, but I want to. And then I want to be a good mother. I want to be a great friend. I want to be really good at, at spending my time helping people improve their well-being. But, you know, for, for the other stuff, so I'll be a 10 there, but for the other stuff, like the housework, you know, or the gardening, like that, I'm putting that as at a six, mm. you know, and, and I'm peaceful. So that's why I say be peaceful at six. Because I say, yeah, you come to my house, it's not going to be beautiful and, and tidy and perfect. And I'm going to be peaceful if you walk in the door and see my house like that. You know, I'm going to be peaceful with that because I'm being a 10 over there doing the things that really matter to me. And, you know, having the house perfect doesn't. But I used to stress about that. I wanted the house to be perfect all the time, even though it wasn't my thing. I wanted the garden to look beautiful, even though it wasn't my thing. And now I just decide, oh, that's going to be a six. And to just sort of have a sigh of relief that, yeah, I can be a six at those things and I really don't care. That makes me feel good as my lawn is full of dandelions. <laughs> yes. And you know what? I don't know why we get rid of dandelions. They're so pretty, really, <laughs> yeah. right? They're so... And I, I see these salads. People make these beautiful dandelion salads. Uh, I remember my dad used to make a beautiful dandelion salad. It was delicious. <laughs> I'm just growing dandelions for salads. And my daughter, there you go. <laughs> my daughter is two and a half. She's like, dad, flowers. I'm like, yeah, flowers. <laughs> That's right. They're so pretty. Yeah. Um, but thank you for that. I, I really appreciated that perspective on perfectionism and um, we can't do it all. And super interesting where you talked about the females, 14 items versus males, seven items. That's one of those, I guess, Males don't see that, that females have that on them all the time. So I think it's good as a male to hear that, that I have more compassion. And that brings me to a question or a comment on your book, why should women rule the world? And I liked that piece. So (laughs) maybe just speak to that. And then I have one last question for you. (laughs) I did get some pushback. (laughs) No, that's great. I did get, I did have a few men email me about that one. (laughs) I thought it was great. Yeah. And and first of all, I, I love men. I love men. So it's not, 
it's not a, a, when I say I think women should rule the world is because, you know, right now we live in a male dominated society, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's mostly men that are running the world right now. And I just feel that if we had more women at the top running the world, we would include more of those things. And there are studies that show, for example, there's a lot of companies, uh, banks, for example, in developing nations that give micro loans. And oftentimes they will only give these little micro loans to women First of all, because they have a great payback rate. But second of all, what they find is that the women spend it on things like education and, you know, better food supply or uh, clean water for their villages. And so they elevate the entire well-being of the village when you give a woman money. So women have this kind of natural nurturing, not that men don't have that. But I think if we have more women at the top, we will just bring more of what is important for both men and women to the forefront. And and I think that will help society to bring more of those voices to the top. I I, I agree. I mean, you look for how many centuries women have been the primary caregiver for children and they just have innately that empathy and compassion built in. And we see that through women in leadership roles and actually the most influential person from a work perspective and actually that transfers to life for me was uh, I was 25 and I got a job, which I probably shouldn't have. I was quite young, but uh, uh, the most impactful woman hired me and I've learned so much from her and she still is a big, big inflection point in my life. And it was a hybrid of like so much empathy and compassion yet clarity on what she wanted to do, but in such a, like a delicate but yet strong way. And uh, I I have a lot of respect for her. Yeah. And it's not to say, of course, men have the same, you know, what we do know from the studies that women are more empathetic than men, but it's not to say that men are not empathetic. I've certainly had some incredible uh, male managers and, and leaders that I've worked with in my life too. So not to say that, I just think that it would be nice to have, I, I always go back to the story of Sheryl Sandberg when she, I think she joined Yahoo or something and she got in late and she was pregnant, like eight months pregnant. She had to walk from way back uh, of the parking, this huge parking lot to the front. And she said, like, why don't we have pregnancy parking at the front? See, she didn't think of that until she became pregnant herself, even though she was a woman, Mm -hmm. because she hadn't gone through pregnancy, she didn't think about that. So that's, I'm just saying that when you have a female experience then they bring those things, a different perspective to the table that might help more people. And of course, that's why we have diversity programs too, to bring people of color Mm -hmm. uh, and different races and cultures and backgrounds too. And if we have all those voices at the top, I think it would just make for a better society. I I, I agree. And that's why I was happy to see it early in your book, because I think the pendulum is so, it's not equal. So it needs to swing so far to the other side before we get back. And my last question for you is, I believe you're in Toronto, in Ontario somewhere. Yes. Toronto. Okay. Yeah. Let's fast forward out uh, till you're 95 years old and you could be in Toronto. You could be anywhere in the world. The roof goes off wherever you are and you're in this spot and it has a beautiful front porch and you're looking back at your life and you're tasked to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about living a good life. What would be in that letter? Wow. That's a great question. I mean, if I really had to think of the the main message, it would be 
about nurturing relationships, mm-hmm. you know, having those good positive relationships with family, with uh, loved ones. You know, I say to my male grandchildren, my female grandchildren to always have friends, even if you're, if you're married, to always have your friends because you never know what happens with marriages these days, but your friends are going to be with you. Uh, for your whole life. And I've certainly found that in my life that those close relationships are what gets me through everything. Mm. And those close relationships are also the ones that I want to celebrate with when things are good as well. And that is the true spice of life. That is where true happiness and love lies in those relationships. Thank you. It's recorded so you can have the transcript to write your okay. letter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to picture that. Where I was thinking, I'll probably be on some porch in Sicily, watching the shore, watching the ocean come in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Can you please share with uh, our listeners where they can find more information about you? I will include everything in the show notes, but please, anything you want to say about the work you're doing, your book. Right. So people can find out more about me at louisajewel.com, my website, my book, Wire Your Brain for Confidence, The Science of Conquering Self-Doubt, you can find on Amazon. And also my new podcast is launching on Audible. If you're an Audible member, you can look for it. It's called Awesome Project and it's launching on June 16th, 2021. So I'm really excited about that too. Awesome. We will include everything. And that's Wednesday, right? Yes. Yes. Wednesday. We'll release this episode Wednesday too. There. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you so much. It was so much fun to be here. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Louisa as much as I did. Until next time, have a great week.